Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. Penny Windsor has twice been a carer, first to her mother and now as a single parent to her autistic son. Penny's first book is called Tender, The Imperfect Art of Caring. And in her book and this episode, Penny shows how looking after ourselves is a fundamental part of caring for another. This is a really beautiful conversation. I found it really emotional and inspiring. So inspired by Penny. And despite some of the monumental challenges that she's faced in life, her ability to take insights and wisdom and share those with us is quite mind-blowing. I really hope that you find her equally inspiring and I hope that you take from this episode what you need. We cover a lot of ground and I suspect that every single person listening is going to take something different from it. So I really hope you enjoy it and as ever please do let us know what you thought of the conversation, what you took from it and please do share it if you think you know someone who might benefit from hearing Penny's words. Here it is. Penny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited and emotional actually to have this chat because I think your book and your life experience is incredibly emotional and you say your whole life has been defined by caring for others and that sentence really struck me don't know why maybe I need to unpack that for myself but it really struck me and so I'm wondering if you could start by telling us about why that sentence is true for you. I think I'm very much not alone in that I think a lot of people can describe their life in that way probably if they think about it so I am a single parent with two children and my kids are now nine and eleven and my eldest son Arthur is autistic and has learning difficulties and Really, it was when he was diagnosed when he was about three that I sort of really started thinking about the care I had provided for my mum when I was a teenager. And she was very unwell with depression and alcoholism, probably from around the age of 11. It started about 11, but it became very significant when I was about 13. And she died by suicide when I was 22. And in those years, although I had thought about them quite a lot, I'd certainly thought about my mother quite a lot in those intervening years. But it was interesting, actually, I thought more about her death and also her life and all of the really positive aspects of her life. I think particularly when she died, I felt really ready to just think about the good things for a while. And they were in those years, many, many good times as well. Like with a lot of people with depression, it was quite cyclical and wasn't always really difficult. But when my son was diagnosed, I think I really started thinking about the care I provided for her. And it was probably around the age of 30. So a few years before I became a parent that I first heard the term young carer. And it was not a term I was aware of when I was a teenager. And it was really interesting hearing that word for the first time. It was like a little light bulb went on and I was like, oh, that was me. That's what I was doing. And I had no language for it when I was a teenager. And I think that's very true for young carers everywhere, that it's not unusual to have no word for what you do for your family. And that can be either for a parent or for a sibling as well, or for a grandparent or anybody else. And we don't talk about that very much. We don't talk about the care that we often provide other family members. We talk about, when we talk about care often, I mean, it has changed quite significantly this past year, I think. I think there's a lot more conversations happening. But generally in the past, and part of what motivated me to write about my experience was that we only talked about care in very specific circumstances. And it was usually to do with supporting aging parents and not really all of the other possible ways that you can be providing care for other family members and friends. I guess it was when I experienced my second time of being a carer that I really started thinking about 
my first time as a carer. How did hearing that phrase young carer and then that moment when you hear a label I've had a few experiences like that and you think oh yes how did that reframe the experience or help you think differently about your 11 12 13 year old self it was really validating it was really really validating because I think when you don't have a language to describe something it's always hard to form a narrative about it in your mind and although I did know that what I went through was unusual. I was really lucky that I did have, even though we didn't have other adults living with us because my parents were divorced and my dad was living in another country. So he supported us from afar, very much financially and emotionally, but he wasn't there day to day. But we did have other adults that were around us that popped in and out. And so we were definitely not alone, but we were the only people in the house supporting my mum. And I think when you don't have like a word that describes what you do, it's really difficult to explain it to other people. I think I just, in a way, thought, well, I'm experiencing what it's like to have a parent who's experiencing a really hard time. But I sort of forget that I was also experiencing a really hard time in a different kind of way, from a different perspective. And it wasn't just because my mum couldn't parent me any longer. It was because I was also caring for her. And so there was two different things going on. I think when I was younger, other people around us were focusing on the fact that my mum couldn't be a present parent for us and maybe were less focused on the fact that we were doing it for her instead. What was the impact of that? What did you learn? You know, it's funny. I know I've read about lots of people who've been through quite challenging experiences and they talk about not regretting them in a way like they couldn't wish them away. And I feel the same way about the experience I had with my mum. And that's not to say I really, really wish she hadn't gone through it. And I really, really wish that she was still here. But I can't regret it from my own perspective because I learned so much from what she went through. And I feel like it's a testament to her that I was able to take something so positive from it. Because I know that for her, that was the most important thing about her experience was that we learned from it. Because in a way, you know, for her, I think she felt like she learned a lot of lessons too late about looking after herself. And she wanted us, and I think especially for me as a girl, to learn from what she found out a bit too late. Mm. So interesting because she, you describe her in the book as, you know, in a way, the kind of perfect super mum. She really was. She was that mother until I was 11 who she had all the balls in the air all the time. We were so fortunate. We had a beautiful house and garden. We had an incredible community that we lived within with lots of friends locally. She was very loved. She had a lot of friends. My friends all adored her. And, you know, she was one of those mums where, you know, you wanted to come around to her house for dinner because she was a great cook. And also everyone was always very welcome as well. And she loved being a mother. She really loved being a mother. And this is the thing I think sometimes that was interesting and why I struggled to talk about my mum's illness and death at first in my 20s, because I felt like people didn't understand that nuance, that she could be very significantly ill and still not regret being a mother and still love being a mother and still glad that she did it every day. I had some really difficult conversations early on and she died in 2000. And obviously the conversation was really different then around suicide and is changing, thank goodness. But people couldn't hold those two ideas together at the same time. This idea that she didn't want to live but she loved us very much. It's a hard truth to hold on to, but it is very true. And I think that's something that's really important to me to continue talking about my mum's experience because I know she really wanted people to understand her experience better. And she would be, I think, really happy that I've written about her experience, although I'm sure she would be horrified by some of the things I've, I've revealed potentially, but she would have been supportive of me discussing it because one of the things that she found hardest about her illness was that she felt there was so much shame around it. And interestingly, she was a volunteer vice president for a cancer organization in Australia, and she was very passionate about the work she did with them. And I remember at one point in my early teens, she said to me that she had cancer instead, because she knew that her illness was partly to do with various different kind of stress and different things, which she believed potentially manifested in lots of different ways, but for her it manifested in depression and initially anxiety and then depression and alcoholism. 
And she felt that she had the double whammy of being very, very ill and nobody understanding and blaming her for it as well. Yeah, the conversation is changing so much. But back then it was an incredibly different landscape, Mm. wasn't it? It was almost chalk and cheese. You know, we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go, but we're so much further down that line than we were 20 years ago when your mum had been going through that. Yeah, it's changed significantly and I'm really glad. I'm so pleased also to be able to be part of that and it's part of the reason I talk quite openly about my mum's suicide because I feel like, you know, I spent a long time processing it. I'm very fortunate. My mum was very open with me all through the time that she was ill about what she was experiencing. So there was no mystery about my mother's illness and death and I feel like that was a huge gift that she gave me. And I'm comfortable with the language and I'm able to discuss it. And I feel like it's sort of my responsibility as someone who is able to speak openly about it because I know there are so many people who want the information, who need to feel less alone, who can't speak about it, who don't know how to ask, who don't know how to bring it up. So it does feel like a responsibility and something I can actually do because it's funny, you know, when I talk about it on things like Instagram, on stories or something like that, I do get messages from people saying, oh, that's so brave. It actually isn't brave anymore. I really genuinely have processed it and come to terms with it. It doesn't feel brave for me. It just feels like something I'm able to do. I think part of processing something is, of course, feeling the grief and the conflicting feelings, all the feelings, but being able to take the wisdom out of the experience. And I feel like that's really what you do. And I love this core thing that you took from your experience with your mum, which was about as caregivers, particularly as mothers, to care for ourselves. And interestingly, my story, you know, my mum's story didn't end in her suicide, but it's something that she says to me all the time. She's really well now. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, but she says to me all the time, you you have to look after yourself. You have to look after yourself. So I actually, like you, find it quite easy to do that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, I feel like I have so many friends who struggle so hard to take care of themselves in really basic ways. And this is part of why I feel really fortunate about my experiences, because I feel like it's not hard for me to look after myself. It's not hard for me to put my foot down and say no for certain things. That's not to say I don't struggle with lots of other aspects of being a mother, but I don't struggle with knowing what my limits are. What did your mum used to say to you about this almost dual experience that you had with her, which was the first 11 years of her Mm -hmm. almost kind of in absolute service and sacrifice? And I imagine not from what you describe, you know, really not tending to her own needs to then this huge pendulum swing and in a very extreme way, you then had to take care of her needs. What did she share with you about that dual experience and what have you really taken from it? She shared everything with me. (laughs) And that was both a blessing and a curse. I think she shared probably too much too young with me, but it's so interesting the older I get, the more I'm grateful for everything she shared with me. Because, you know, she died when I was 22, long before I had my own family. But I knew so much about her experience of motherhood because she shared it with me. I often know more about my mum's experience than other friends of mine whose mothers are still alive know about their experience of motherhood because my mum well she first of all loved to talk about our early years because I think she really thrived in our early years not that it was always easy by any means my dad actually traveled significantly all my life and so she was a solo parent a lot of the time but yes she really did thrive and so she liked to talk about it and she also talked about the challenges I mean I know about her traumatic experiences she had with two out of three of our births and you know how the doctors treated her at the Catholic hospital and I know you know like all these different things because she liked to talk about it she thought it was really important that I knew which I feel really lucky about because that's the thing that's really difficult when a parent dies is that the information is cut off often you know of course my dad doesn't remember any of this stuff (laughs) you know like he was a working dad who was away a lot of the time and was probably a very typical baby boomer dad in that, you know, of course he hung out with us, of course he cooked breakfast and did the school runs and things sometimes, but he was not our main caregiver. Our mum was our main caregiver. So I think the loss of a main caregiver, the thing that's the additional challenge to actually missing that person is the information that you'll never know as well. So I feel really grateful for 
my mum telling me a lot of stories. But, you know, that comes at a price. It was very difficult. It was a lot to hold when I was in my earth, particularly in my early teens, around 13, 14, were probably the most difficult years because we weren't as well supported as we could have been. We were carrying a lot, and I don't think people on the outside could see yet at that point how much we were carrying inside the house because like a lot of people with depression my mum tried to hide it very well and so it sort of remained something that was very much in our household and of course people knew that something was going on but the extent of it was not necessarily understood so yeah I was carrying very much I would say too much at that point and if I think about my daughter going through the same thing oh like I just yeah And that in itself is enough for me to look after myself, you know, knowing that I would never want my daughter to go through what I went through at 13 and to carry what I was carrying. What was your outlet when you were caring for your mum? Did you start acting out, you know, in your own ways or did you find some healthy ways to process? Like I cannot imagine at that age, which is an incredibly challenging age anyway, to also be holding caring for a really really unwell mother in that way how on earth did you get through that like did you knuckle down and just become an a-grade student or did you start drinking or did you just numb it out like how did you do that at first I just sort of carried on when sort of 11 12 into 13 and as you said they're quite tricky years anyway and it's difficult for me to separate the trickiness of being a young teen <laughs> from the experience I was going I mean, through at home and it wasn't yeah you can't you separate can't, yeah but I think what ended up happening was I did retreat I was very lucky I had lots of friends at school so I wasn't completely isolated but I don't remember really discussing it with them I think they knew kind of vaguely what was going on I didn't hide it but I didn't talk about it either I didn't have the language actually to talk about it I had been a really full-on straight A student and my grades did start slipping. By the time I was 14 in year nine, my grades were really slipping. I was finding school less interesting, hard to be interested in it and I still had my friends but I wouldn't say that I was as quite as close to them because I couldn't talk about what was happening but I didn't feel alone. I wasn't alone if you know what I mean but I didn't feel connected to everybody else because I just couldn't. I, I knew what I was going through was really different to what everyone else was going through. So actually it was at the end of that year when I turned 15 and it was the end of the school year in Australia and I said to my dad, I don't think I can be in the house anymore. And I was really fortunate. My dad was sort of like, oh, thank God, there's actually something I can do. My dad didn't live in Australia. I think he was feeling probably a bit helpless as well about how to support us. So I told him, I think I need to go away to school. I think I can't be in the house all the time. And he supported me fully and told my mum and my mum was furious, really furious. And I went away to school when I was 15. I don't think it's too strong to say that it saved my life, that experience of going away to school. And it's really funny. I know we kind of really sort of, I mean, most people think that boarding school is always an awful thing, but in my experience, it was a place of safety. Mm -hmm. And it is actually for quite a lot of people, a place of safety where home isn't as safe anymore. And it's not the place that's caring for you. When I went away to school, I felt properly cared for for the first time in years. I'm nodding because I've really opened my mind on this. I used to be quite close-minded about boarding school. And if I'm honest, like quite judgmental about it, I couldn't understand why you would send your child away. And I think quite a few people I know had traumatic experiences Mm -hmm. there. Actually, over the past kind of five, six years, I've heard so many stories of your experience where actually it has saved people, particularly where there's addiction in the home or Mm, dysfunction in the home. Or it just reminds me that in life, nothing is ever all good or all bad. Like it's just just the experience that anyone brings to something. I think I just need to continually open my mind to things like that. I think it's so true. And there's so many other things that I agree that I've had my mind changed about as well for exactly the same reason. There's so many different things going on here. Not all of my friends at school had a good experience at school, even though we're at the same school, going to the same classes in the same kind of quite nurturing environment. And it really had a lot to do with the autonomy I had being there. It was my choice. My dad didn't say, you're going to school because I'm not happy about this. I wasn't sent. I chose to go. It was completely 100% 
off my own bat. And I was just so lucky. My dad supported me both financially and emotionally with the decision. And so I think that made all the difference. And also my age, I was 15. So it's very, very different to going at 11. I think it would have been a disaster probably for me to go at 11. Like I think it is for a lot of people, it's very young. So I think part of the reason it was so positive for me was that it was an autonomous choice and I felt I had agency and it really did give me agency. It really, really significantly showed me that there are ways I can rescue myself. I mean, yes, I'm from this very privileged background. My dad could afford to do it. So this was not me on my own doing it. But it showed me that if I asked and if I reached out, sometimes there are other options. Sometimes there are ways of moving forward. It's funny, over the years, I thought I look back at that decision of mine to go away to school. It was a very risky decision. Very, very risky. And it's sort of hard to almost articulate how risky a decision it was because my mum when I told her that I wanted to go, she did say that she would die if I left. And I had to take that risk. I had to take the risk because I knew that I was going down with her. I could feel it. You had to save yourself. It's a really awful lesson to learn at that age, but a really important one. And I think for anyone listening who has a family member with an addiction or a severe mental illness, that You can be there for that person, but you can't save them. You know, you can just be there. And even though obviously I went to school and that was incredible for me because I was being cared for, the other thing that was really good even aside from that was I could control our contact. So, for instance, I could speak to her at 6 p.m. in the evening, not 8 a.m. in the morning, which meant that I could get through my school day without her having (laughs) set something off in me. So I could control when we had those conversations because I was still a carer. People doing care remotely are still carers. Significant numbers of people care remotely for their parents, for instance, making sure they get to appointments, making sure they have everything they need, coordinating their care from a distance. A lot of people do that for siblings as well. So I think it is important to say that I still very much look at that time. I was giving my mum support still, but I was just also getting care myself and kind of able to control when I had that contact as well. It's such a, I can't imagine that tension in that moment, although in some ways I kind of can relate a little bit to that decision of I'm going to have to save myself here. And that experience, it must have taught you so much, especially now as a mother and a carer again, about the power of making sure that we're okay in order to then be able to care for others. Also, interestingly, it did turn out to be the best decision I could have made, not just for myself, but it didn't have a significant effect on my mum, ultimately. The first few weeks were really, really hard because I kept waiting for that call. And then when that call didn't come and I realised that maybe things were stable, as stable as they could be, the first time I went home for the proper holidays rather than just a weekend I remember sitting at the kitchen counter with my mom and having a long conversation and she was having a really good day and she just said to me I you're back you know like as in you the penny that I remember is back and she hadn't even realized until I went away the effect that her experience was having on me until she saw me removed from the situation And she could see the old me again. And from that point on, not all the time, because when she was going through a bad phase, she would bring it up and there'd be a lot of blame about me not being there. But when she was in her right mind, when she wasn't drinking, when she wasn't in a really bad spiral, she rationally knew and was very supportive of the fact that I'd made that choice. So I knew it was the right thing to do. It turned out certainly to be the best thing for me because I then went on to do quite well for the rest of high school and felt really well supported and was healthier, you know, physically and mentally and everything. And then I did move back home when I went to university and I lived with her during university. And that was fantastic, actually, because I had a car, so I could just literally walk out the door if I needed to and go and stay with friends. And actually, I did often spend a couple of nights a week with my best friend. And so I got breaks. I got the breaks I needed But also we were able to spend a lot of time together in a much less high-pressured way 
because I had my the independence I needed to be able to walk away when it was too difficult. But at the same time, I could be there for her when she really needed me. We got into a really good place in those last three years that we lived together. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. And how have you kind of taken all those lessons and that wisdom and that insight of your experience with your mum and applied it to today? Because your son, Arthur, as you mentioned, is autistic with learning disabilities. So you're in that caring role again. But what I see in you and what you describe in the book is someone who does that role. I don't think you make it look easy at all because I don't think it is easy at all. (laughs) But I think I see someone who really understands because of that experience with your mum that you have to be okay in order to give him what he needs which is he has really high needs isn't he what was that experience like coming to terms I guess with being a carer again but then realizing that you could apply all of this wisdom to this situation well it's interesting because at first actually I think I was more scared not by the autism diagnosis but by the significance of his needs it wasn't autism itself. I find autism really fascinating, actually. It's a really, you know, neurodiversity is really interesting to me. And I'm not really interested in having kids who are like everybody else, particularly. But the significance of his needs were scary at first. And I think it was scary partly because I had been there before. I couldn't kid myself about what it feels like to hold someone else's life in your hands. It is really overwhelming to know that often you are between them and them completely falling apart and that you're the glue that's going to keep that together. And that's really overwhelming. And this time, of course, it's indefinite, you know, because my son is healthy and hopefully that will stay that way for a really, really long time. So hopefully he'll have a nice long life, which, you know, means that my son is going to need me significantly, indefinitely. and that. I think is one of the big differences between raising a typical child and raising a disabled child is that there's no, oh, well, once they're 18, once they're 21, once they're 25, um, of course my son will change and his needs will change and the support that we look for will change, of course, over time and I don't know what it'll look like in the future. But he will need me as a co-advocate, you know, indefinitely in some form or other and probably in quite a significant way. So really, I think the thing that's a big challenge for a parent carer is managing your energy long term, you know, managing what's needed from you in the long view and not just in the short term. It's not just, okay. well, when they get to school, okay. well, when they're able to let themselves in after school on their own, when they're able to stay in the house on their own, when there are, you know, different milestones that you might go through that your children, your children reach new levels of independence that maybe mean that, okay, no, I can start doing this again and we can do that as a family now and we can do this. Although, of course, our family will chop and change and things will grow and my son is always developing, it doesn't look like it looks in other families in regaining other kinds of freedoms as he grows. In fact, actually, it's probably almost the opposite. His challenges get more complex, actually, as he gets older. One example is, you know, he's 11 now and he's big and strong. And if he has a meltdown in the playground around toddlers, it's really dangerous. It wasn't really a problem when he was a toddler. You know, I could manage him quite well (laughs) physically. And now he's 11. It's difficult and dangerous when he gets upset in the playground. And I have to think about, you know, the future of like, well, when are we maybe going to have to stop going to a playground? Is there going to be a point at which he still needs a playground, but we can't access it because it's not appropriate for him and his size to be in a sandpit around very small children? So in some ways, 
our life gets a bit more complex as he gets older. But in other ways, you know, we get really good at figuring out things that work for us and I get better at looking after him and he gets better at communicating and so we can work things out. But it certainly gets more complex in a way sometimes that maybe typical parenting doesn't. Yeah, you know, I was thinking I've got two girls, five and 18 months, and when I'm out with the two of them, well, Rose is just into everything. So runs off. She's like, Kamakart is just hilarious. <laughs> and the level of hypervigilance exhausts me because I'm constantly thinking, where's Jessie? And I know this is the same for every mum of two. You know, this is like standard. But I was thinking about you this morning and I was thinking, you've had that extreme hypervigilance for 11 mm. years and you'll probably have that for the foreseeable that you must constantly be thinking whether you're in or out of the home is this safe is that a trigger is that from a sensory perspective okay is that going to have a meltdown is he about to have a meltdown where's my daughter what's going you know and I want really curious to ask you about that and how you come down in yourself from that level of hypervigilance and thinking ahead and yeah I was really curious about that yeah I mean you've really touched on I think what is probably one of the most challenging things about being a carer and I know it's similar for carers who are supporting someone with Alzheimer's or dementia who are at other end of the (laughs) the scale when they're in decline and also people with other kinds of brain injuries as well where they perhaps lose their sense of safety and so can't necessarily make the same choices that they used to make and this hypervigilance is really, really, really challenging. And it's the thing that worries me about my energy levels. What it means is that I have to kind of constantly make choices between what I can manage and what I want my children to have. You know, if we're going to go out and do something for my son, and I know it's going to require a lot of my energy to keep him safe, then I know there's we can't do anything else that day. <laughs> or we might even not do something the next day as well, just in terms of being able to balance my energy with his needs. And so that's kind of a constant balancing act that's happening. And it's, of course, significantly more challenging at the moment because of COVID restrictions and the fact that he's not done so many things for so long where he's relearning how to be in public often. And because some of the things that we're doing now he was used to doing before, but we have to do it in a different way now. That's a new learning and it's really difficult for him. You know, he has an amazing memory, but what's really difficult is that he wants to do it in the old way and we can't do something in the old way. We have to do a new way. We have to line up here and we have to do this and it's all different to before. And all of these small things make going out even more challenging than it was before. So yeah, it's complex. The hypervigilance is really, really challenging. I have to be careful. I was able to be a bit more gung-ho pre-COVID, but I'm much more cautious at the moment. It's going to take us quite a long time, I think, to build up, partly because I have a hell of a lot less energy after the past year and what we've been through as a family because it's been very, very challenging for my son. So for me, when I need to kind of come down from that hyper, hyper aroused state of keeping my son safe. And it is, and I would call it keeping my son safe in public. It's really challenging to do that. And I'm sure anyone who's ever had a toddler who was, as you say, quite (laughs) gung-ho knows that feeling. I do have my go-to things. I would say reading is a big one for me, a really big one. Like being able to go through a full narrative experience and that all of the emotions of a narrative And to feel those experiences with characters and come out the other side in a resolution, that for me is a really, really big thing that I turn to. So I do read a lot and listen to a lot of audiobooks. I think connecting with other people is really, really important, even though sometimes you don't always feel like it, because it's so easy as a carer to become isolated, because these are not necessarily universal experiences. And it can be difficult when you share them with someone who maybe doesn't understand because often they pity you, which is just more weight to carry. So I think having very close friends who understand what you need and it's not pity (laughs) and also having other friends who are carers as well is really, really important to be able to talk to somebody without having to give all the caveats, without having to explain all the background, without having them pity you 
just having someone who understands the shorthand of this was just a really challenging day and I just need to connect with someone. I think that's so important that we have people in our lives that have similar experiences and don't treat us as other because of our different experiences. Yeah, it's so interesting because you talk about in the book how there's 7 million carers but actually, and this really struck me that all of us at some point in our lives will perform that mm. caring role. But you shared how you were reaching out to people to talk to them about their caring experiences of the book. And so many people would say, oh, no, that wasn't caring. That was me just looking after my mom or my dad or my brother or my disabled child. And I'm wondering what you learned from speaking from this broad spectrum of carers Firstly, why it is that people struggle to label themselves as a carer and what it can give people when they do see it in that way. Yeah, it's really interesting. I do actually think it's really important to identify as a carer now. I mean, there's lots of research that has gone in to show that, you know, people who identify as a carer are more likely to reach out and ask for help. And it can take a really long time for people to identify that that is what they're doing. In some cases, I think some research that Carers UK did, it's about 25% of people take up to five years to realise that they're a carer. And during that time, they miss out on significant financial and physical and emotional support. So I am a big proponent for recognising that what we're doing is caring. There's a lot of people that don't identify with the word and it is understandable why they don't, but I sort of do still think it's quite important to use the word. I think part of the reason we don't like the word carer is its association with disability. And I think if we can embrace the word disability, which I absolutely think we should, disability is just a fact of life and it happens. And I don't think we need to attach any judgment to it, any good or bad to it. It is just a fact. And I think if we can do that and we can accept disability, then we can accept care as well. I think part of the reason why the word carer a lot of people don't like it is because they think it diminishes their relationship with the person. We have this idea that when you're caring for someone else, it's somehow one directional, but it isn't at all. It's multi-directional. Just because you provide care for somebody, it doesn't mean that it's a one-way relationship. And I think our narrow idea of what it means to care for somebody else in whatever guise It sort of does a disservice to the relationship. And also providing care for a partner doesn't diminish the fact that they're your partner at all. It shouldn't have to take away from that. The reason I personally use it in relation to having a disabled child is it it sort of helps me to recognise and understand that what I'm doing is beyond parenting. And it's not more important than the fact I'm his mother at all. It doesn't diminish it. It doesn't take away from it. But it's in addition to my role as a mother. And that's partly because I need to have a lot of legal knowledge. I'm constantly fighting for things in his education that is not forthcoming (laughs) and his healthcare. I have to be his therapist. I have to provide, and any person out there listening with a disabled child will know that, you know, therapy doesn't happen in a therapy room. Therapists have to teach carers to do the therapy because it has to be integrated into life. You know, it's not something that you go and do half an hour a week not that even children get generally half an hour a week of therapy, unfortunately, but it's not something that's confined to doctor's offices and therapy rooms. It's something that needs to be integrated into life, whether that's speech or occupational therapy or physical therapy or whatever it is, it has to be integrated. And so carers take on significant roles in terms of therapy, but also you have to act like a psychologist and you have to do loads of problem solving. And there's also a vast amount of admin as well um, around accessing different kinds of services I joke with a lot of other parent carers I know that you basically need to have paid carers come in in order to look after your child so that you can fill out all the paperwork that needs to be done for your disabled child. You know, this is kind of the reality of it. It's really challenging. One of the mums that I interviewed for the book, her son has significant disabilities, like very complex disabilities, and he's not actually able to be with paid carers. He has to be with nurses because his, his needs are quite significant. She has to do full nurse changeovers twice a day as if she is a professional medical specialist because that's just how nurses work, and she has to do it because she and her husband perform the role of nurses when they're not around. They are legally allowed to support their son on their own, but nobody else is legally allowed to. It has to be a trained nurse because of his needs. It would not be legal for them to leave him with a babysitter who didn't 
have nurse training. So it's, you know, significant. And that's the thing that's really interesting as well is that I think what a lot of unpaid carers do and what a lot of people don't realise is it's actually illegal to ask somebody to do for paid work because of the amount of hours they do and the level of support they give. I have one friend who her son is not allowed to be with one paid carer. He has to be with two. But she's a single parent and she's with him on her own all the time. That's legal. That's fine, apparently, according to the law. But it would be illegal for her to ask one person to look after him because they are protected by law and her son, his needs are protected once he's been looked after by somebody who's being paid to be looked after. And I imagine for parent carers, this gets even more complex because you're exhausted from everything that we've discussed. And yet in order to get some time off, you have to be able to pay for that. So you have to do some paid work. I can imagine how it's very easy to get stuck in that loop of not being able to get care because you can't work and not being able to work because you can't get care. What's your experience? Well, most mothers of disabled children don't work. They just don't work. Only 16% of mothers of disabled children do any paid work of any kind. And only 4%, I think, 3 or 4% work full-time. You know, the differences are significant. I think it's around 70% of mothers of non-disabled children who work outside of the home who do paid work and about 40% who work full-time. So those are really significant number differences. And that is for a couple of reasons. One is there is almost no access to childcare for disabled children. My son cannot access any other care other than one-to-one care. It doesn't exist. We are very lucky, actually. His school does have a holiday club, and in some weeks of the holidays, he's allowed to access a little bit of it. But it's very limited, obviously, because it's in high demand. And so they need for all the children in the school to be able to access it. So that's, you know, wonderful. And it's a huge, incredible service. And I know many, many families who don't have it. We're very fortunate (laughs) we are that we have it at all. But other than that, it has to be one-to-one support in the home. And for a lot of families, the only one-to-one support they can get is the stuff that's paid for through social services because they can't afford to pay for themselves, because they can't go out and work, because they can't get their child looked after. (laughs) It's a really big problem. You know, this country has a huge problem with childcare in general, but it's sort of exponential when it comes to disabled children. And a lot of people don't realise that that essentially having a disabled child means a woman can't work anymore, essentially. Other thing that's very complex is if your child has significant medical needs and needs a lot of appointments on the NHS, you have absolutely no control of those appointments. The NHS just gives them to you when they're available. And that often means that women, um, it's usually the woman, because of obviously, as we know, the gender pay gap. So it's usually the woman who steps back and stops working. So if you have, for instance, a clinic you need to go to for, you know, your heart specialist and a different clinic for the neurologist. And, you know, for these six months, they're on Wednesdays, but actually next year they decide to change those clinics to Thursdays. And then you've got random appointments here and there for different therapists and specialists. It's impossible to work in traditional employment if this is what you're dealing with. And a lot of carers of all kinds end up dealing with this, you know, as your parents age and they need support particularly attending appointments because they might need support within them because they don't understand maybe cognitively what's happening in those appointments anymore and so they need a carer with them to understand their treatments they might have trouble getting to and from their appointments this is a problem that affects carers of all kinds and it can have a huge significant negative effect on employment and it is women who are taking the brunt of this because even though a lot of men are caring now and I definitely don't want to take away from that. A lot of men are out there caring. Most of them are doing it post-retirement. It's women who are doing it in significant high numbers of hours and they're doing it during their working years. And so they're losing a lot of money, obviously, at the time, but they're also losing a lot in terms of pension contributions as well. And so it has a significant, caring has a significant effect on poverty in older age as well. Do you think a lot about that? You know, I know you're freelance. You almost always have been. And I'm wondering how you think about your kind of financial self-care, because I'm guessing you're thinking, well, Arthur's going to need you forever. You're not in a cushy nine to five. Not that you would want to be. I'm not sure I'd want to be. Anyway. <laughs> you, you know, you have that promise of a retirement pot at the end. Yeah. How much does that play into your day to day financial worries and how much you're able to work? It's so significant and I think it's so important to include finances when we talk about self-care and not just because I want my retirement to be comfortable enough 
and I don't want to be living in poverty when I get to retirement age. It's not just that, it's also for my own mental well-being now, knowing that I am taking care of it. It's so, so important. So it's important for me now and it's important for me in the future. For me, my ability to work, I hold on to it so fiercely. It's almost the most important thing to me. And I would say it's probably my number one self-care thing is that I'm able to access work. You know, that's for lots of reasons. I'm really fortunate that I love what I do. I am still a photographer. I'm still doing photography work, but I'm also a writer. I do lots of different things. I work with really incredible people. So I enjoy the work itself. It's very fulfilling. But also, aside from that, it does allow me to pay for extra care that I need for my son, which helps me manage my well-being as well. In addition to that, it allows me to pay into a pension and I pay into a private pension. And it's really, really important to me that I'm doing that. But, you know, I am, like you said, I've always been freelance and I'm really fortunate and it's been incredibly hard. I mean, I am someone who loves work, who wants to work. And I have found myself continually over the years, particularly this last year, beating my head against a brick wall. And I've had this conversation with other parent carers, particularly parent carers, just because of how young we are when we become carers, you know, because a lot of us are in our 30s when we start caring and it will continue. A friend of mine said to me, the benefit system is set up the way that there's no access to, to support and childcare for our children. She said to me, and I, I just find this so true, is that it's like they want us to stay poor. You know, it's like you can try and try and try and try. That for so many people, work remains inaccessible just because of the complex needs of the family. And it's so frustrating because I really genuinely believe it should be, um, it's a right, a human right to be able to access work and to be able to look after yourself financially. I also believe it should be your right to stay at home and look after your children if that's what you choose as well. So I do find it really frustrating, incredibly so, and I will continue to fight. It does feel like a fight to work. It really, really does. And it feels like I have to work really hard to be able to continue working. And so because of that, I have done lots of pivots from being a photographer is really challenging, although I work for myself, I have to be on set yeah. you know, at 9am, you know, in North London. And when you have a child with a disability, you know, when things go wrong, they go really wrong. And that's really difficult. I'm also a single parent. And I also have no family in this country. So, you know, there's lots of reasons why over the years, that's been challenging, but I am switching to much more home-based work now, because obviously, this last year, it's been almost impossible to work outside of the house. But also, I can see that as my son gets older, we're going to actually come up against some more challenges as services chop and change. And some of our services have changed because of COVID and they're not going back. And so, yeah, I've had to pivot my work quite significantly. I mean, I'm really lucky that I can. And I don't think everyone should have to. I feel quite strongly that not everyone should have to work for themselves to be able to access work. Employers should be able to offer flexible working and I hope that working from home becomes much more accessible indefinitely for people because it's a way that carers can access work much more easily than in the past. I'm hopeful that there is some changes happening. And I'm also really grateful that, you know, people who are campaigning like Pregnant and Scrooge and White House who are campaigning on accessing work for women, that they are really including carers in that conversation. Now, it's not just about mothers. It's also about carers because often women go from parenting young children to getting their children to school to supporting their parents. And it's sort of like a bit of a line that we all go through, particularly, you know, once we become parents a little bit later now and our parents are getting older and there might be a few years in the middle where you're not doing it, but really it's very unlikely. Actually, most people and a lot of people now are going literally from one to the next. So it's an issue that affects women across their working lives. Every time I scratch under the surface and learn about an issue like I did when I read your book, I just feel, firstly, I feel like you just hear these words, but you don't understand the experience until you mm. read a book like yours. And I'm so grateful that you wrote it. You know, and I think it's a real privilege to be able to understand another's lived experience. And the second thing that comes up for me is just the more that I kind of, you know, I've had Jolie on from Pregnant and Screwed and some other incredible thinkers and writers and academics about gender pay gap. And I just feel like it's incredibly challenging to be a woman and a mother in this society. And the more that I think you understand and we understand as a collective and what we can do together to change that. Mm. it's just so important isn't it but also 
watching our own burnout right there's this yes. real edge between yes. we have to support each other and campaign and speak mm. up and you know even with this podcast I have to watch my own burnout and oh, 100% because also we can't help you know which is the core message I think of this what we've talked about today and the book is that we can't help unless we're resourced Absolutely. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. I do actually often think about that when I listen to your podcast about how much you carry, because it's such an incredible podcast. The stories that you're able to share through this podcast, they are so important. And so it is a lot to carry. And I know you know you're supposed you need to look after yourself, which is good. But it is really important. I think, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book the way I did, I didn't want to write a straight memoir. I was really interested in the context with which I'm a carer, the context with which I was a young carer and now as a parent carer, and how my stories very much relate to a lot of other people. And so on the surface, you know, somebody who's supporting a partner with a brain injury who's 60 years old you know, you might think, well, we don't have that much in common, but actually we have huge amounts in common. I have probably more in common with her than I have with some of my other friends with, you know, raising a typical family with no disabled family members. So sharing these stories, I agree, sharing these stories is so important. We all have so much in common. And I think that's part of what I wanted to show, the differences, but also the commonalities in caring situations. You know, probably we will all relate to them at some point or other in our lives. We will. And who knows, you know, you might be listening to this conversation and remember it in 10, 20 years time when you yourself might find yourself in that position as someone listening to this. I always ask the same question at the end, as you'll know, because I know you listen to the podcast, but if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Mm, I think in a way I, I would want to give every mother the ability to know that they can do it. But in a way, you can't give that to anyone. They have to discover that for themselves. So I would say probably that I would give people courage to keep going because we discover so much about ourselves from going through it. But it's hard to go through some of the stuff that we all go through. So I would say I would give courage. It's a beautiful gift. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists. And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.